Aren't you all just loving the spring outside? It's so beautiful. I'm just so thankful for the warm weather, being out on the patio. It's just so nice. And um, it's always during the spring season that throughout much of the Western world, right, Christians everywhere are celebrating something called Lent. Uh, for those of you who might be new to um, the Christian tradition or Christian faith, Lent is a period of 40 days besides Sundays um, on the traditional Christian liturgical calendar ending up around Easter. So in Greek and Latin, we call this time the Paschal season, the Pasqua. It comes from the Passover word. And um, those who observe Lent commemorate Jesus's 40 days of fasting in the wilderness as they prepare, as they get there. And it's a reflective time of repentance and grief and remembering Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. Oftentimes, people will sac um, fast from certain foods, especially on Fridays. This is why we have fish on Fridays, right? At, at uh, TJF Fridays or wherever it is. Um, Eastern Orthodox churches call it a season of bright sadness, which makes me think a little bit of what Bruce just shared about there's a sob the soberness to it and there's a celebration when we think of taking communion. And so they call it the season of bright sadness. We've got the joy at the power of the resurrection, but sadness when we remember the reality of our human condition our own propensity towards sin, selfishness, greed, fear, lust, and all the things we just so easily fall into. Here in Utah, I don't think we hear much about it. We don't see it as much in Utah because I think Lent is not part of the LDS tradition. And here we are with our LDS neighbors. Um, in our family tradition here in this church, we really focus on, on the cross and on celebrating Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. So that's kind of like our family tradition here. But no matter what background you come from, it can either be really meaningful at this deep level, or it can just be a form or a ritual, right? Um, there's a story about a man who walked into a Catholic church just af after mass, not during mass hours, and he gets there. And he finds a priest. And what does he do when he sees a priest? He pulls out a gun and he says, um, give me everything you have. And the priest starts going through his pockets and he pulls out lifesavers like Steve Wonky, lots of wrapped candy. And he shows it to the robber and he's like, this is all I have. And the robber says, father, but I gave up candy for Lent. Okay, I know it's a really bad joke. But it illustrates the point that we often miss the whole point of our traditions and our rituals. We miss the point of the cross. This guy clearly had missed the point of Lent. For some of us, the idea of talking about the cross is foreign. It feels foreign, especially, like I said, um, we can find it troubling. I know that the cross is very troubling for many of my LDS neighbors. It's a point of like discomfort. And you know what? The cross is troubling. <laughs> it is a troubling image. It is jarring. It is um, 
startling at points. It's a tough image to think about, meditate on. The broken body, the shed blood. Why do we do this? Why do we think about this? For others of us, maybe we're raised in church traditions. We've been worshiping all these years with a cross in view. And for, for those of us, maybe it's become an intellectual practice to think about, or maybe for some of us, it can become material, like a charm that we use or an object that might protect us, we think. And then perhaps some of us are like the robber and we've just completely missed the point. <laughs> so today, as we go towards Resurrection Sunday, I want us to think about what the cross means. Why is it so important? Why do we ask God to make it new to us every year? Why do we celebrate communion every, you know, every other Sunday here, the first and the third, but sometimes we do it more than that? Why is this such a central image for us? The first reason is because the cross is a picture of God's astounding and never-ending love for us. When John the Baptist, when Jesus first arrives on the scene and John the Baptist sees Jesus, this is what he announces. He announces Jesus's identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, when John the Baptist said this, no one had a clue. What he, like, what is he talking about? What is, why is Jesus saying this? Or why is John the Baptist saying this about the Lamb of the God? No one would have believed had they known that he was, he was foretelling even the death of Jesus on the cross. Because in the Jewish system, that, they, that, that the culture that Jesus had arrived in, the way God's people could see that their sin was cleansed was by sacrificing a lamb on an altar. This is a hard image. They would place their hand on the neck of the lamb, and when the blood was drawn and the life would leave the lamb, God's people would see, oh, look at the great cost of our sin. It was meant to be a picture that we would see that our selfish ambition and our reckless actions that we take so lightly were actually very costly. And they didn't bring life, but they brought death. And the precious lamb would take that death in its own body. And here comes John the Baptist saying, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ crucified would be the new picture of the cost of our sin and a picture of God's profound love for us. The book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as a priest, and this is what it says about him. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. 
and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Hallelujah. The other day, we had a bunch of friends over to our house. It had been a really cold week, but it was Saturday and the sun was shining. And I'm cleaning the house, getting everything ready, tidying up, making room for everybody. And I realized we're going to want to hang out on the patio. But I have not done any spring cleaning on the patio. There's like an inch of dust on my back patio. But I don't ever really do much spring cleaning on my patio because time, right? <laughs> and so what I did is last, the last couple of years, I, keep, I buy new tablecloths. <laughs> And so when spring comes, what do I do? I pull out the tablecloth and dust and all, I just throw the tablecloth on top of that patio table. So if you had been there Saturday night and you were interested in what was under the tablecloth, you would have found a lot of dust and pollen and all the stuff. But there was a new tablecloth on top. Every time I do this, I remember a message that Corky preached, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago where he'd use this illustration that sometimes we think, and I hope I remember it correctly. This is the way I remember it. <laughs> but sometimes we think we, Jesus just throws a tablecloth on us with that sacrifice. He just, he just covered us like a robe of righteousness. He just covered us. But what Jesus did is way bigger than that. He doesn't just cover the mess. He actually cleanses us, removes the mess. He washes us clean. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus's sacrifice was way bigger, better than a cover-up. <laughs> 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. God's love for us is so great that by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is, a, excuse me, this is a mystery and a paradox, isn't it? We are being made holy but we are made perfect. It's incredible. And we receive this by faith. It's trusting in God that we receive this deep new work in us that washes us clean of our sin and makes us right before God. The cross is also a picture of how we love God and love one another. The first time that Jesus ever mentions the cross, is in an incident recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to prepare his friends. This is long before he gets to the cross. This is early on. He's trying to prepare them for, hey, you know what John the Baptist said, someday some hard stuff is going to go down. It's in Mark 8. It says, Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for what he was saying. Imagine taking Jesus aside and reprimanding him. 
Jesus turns around, looks at disciples, then reprimands Peter. <laughs> Get away from me, Satan, he says. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Clearly, there's a spiritual battle going on here, right? I mean, he's calling Peter Satan. <laughs> I would be like, ouch, Jesus, ouch. But the idea of the cross was so, this idea of suffering, this idea of dying and being raised again is so problematic for Peter that in Peter's resistance, he's actually siding with Satan. <laughs> and Jesus calls it out. But the cross, Jesus's work at the cross ends up being the most, it's the end of the story. The cross and the resurrection, they are the point of all four gospels. This is important stuff. We have to embrace the message of the cross or we're going to be like Peter. We have to receive the message of the cross or we're like Peter. Jesus goes on to say it in Mark 8. Then, <laughs> then right after that, he's like, come follow me, people. <laughs> then he calls the crowd to join his disciples. And he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. This is a troubling message. <laughs> if I want to be a follower of Jesus, it means that giving up my own way, taking up my own cross, and following him. But there's a promise. If I do this, I will find life. Here's what's more. We don't just find life. There's power. There's power in taking up the cross. Paul says this to the Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. How often do we come to God like the Jews saying, show me a sign, show me something, show us your power, right? That's what we want. And yes, God does give us signs and does show power. God is so generous in this way. But Paul is saying Christ crucified is the power. And Jesus himself asks us to remember him by breaking the bread, the symbol of his broken body and drinking the wine symbol of his blood shed. This is the power. 
This is why we remember the cross. Brennan Manning calls it the signature of Jesus. The cross is the signature. It's like Jesus signing his letter to us. And then how often do we come to God like the Greeks, wanting a philosopher greater than Plato, looking for an argument to help us understand the mystery of the universe and the harmony of meaning and all of these things, looking for proof, wanting logic to explain everything we don't understand. But scripture is saying, do you want wisdom? Christ crucified is the wisdom. The message of the cross, Christ crucified, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified, the power of God, the wisdom of God. How is this so? Christ crucified shows us the wisdom and the power don't come without sacrificial love first. It's like the gifts of the spirit that we like to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13. There's all this stuff about all the amazing things that the gifts of the spirit do, but all the instructions about how to operate in the gifts of the spirit are centered with a chapter about love first. Love first. And Jesus demonstrated this. I want to tell the story of the cross. And there's four gospels that tell this at length. And so I recommend for over the next few weeks that you read these stories. Go to your Bibles. Read again what happened at the cross. Listen, watch. Maybe go on a walk and play it on your Bible app. I don't know. But take time this week to really absorb that story and remember what happened. But I just want to summarize it here with some points to remind us of what happened at the cross. It starts in the evening, right? At a last supper, Jesus with his disciples, breaking bread with them, drinking wine with them, saying a few last things to them, and washing their feet, washing their feet, asking us to remember him that way from now on breaking bread together, drinking together, and washing each other's feet. Then they sing a hymn, because yes, there's always music, right? <laughs> they sing a hymn, probably a somber hymn. And they walk to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus prays alone throughout the night, trying to get his disciples to pray with him but they don't seem to understand the significant as what is happening. So he prays alone throughout the night. Later, Judas comes, one of his disciples, one of his friends, and he betrays him with a kiss. A kiss betrays Jesus. Then Jesus is arrested and taken away by authorities. His disciples scatter, abandon him, leave him. Throughout the night, Jewish, he's taken back and forth between Jewish and Roman leaders. They question him, they mock him, they abuse him, they beat him. Some of his disciples deny him and abandon him. Then Jesus next is brought before Pilate, the governing authority. Pilate, knowing he's innocent, brings him before a crowd. I mean, how is he handled? He's just taken here and there. 
before individuals, before crowds, before groups. The crowd, influenced by religious leaders, condemned Jesus and condemns Jesus and yells, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, okay, washes his hands of it, says, do what you want with him. The crowd takes the, Jesus, gives Jesus a cross, and he marches on the road to a place outside of town where common criminals are crucified, a place called the Skull, Golgotha. Once he's there, his hands and feet are nailed to a cross. He's placed between two thieves, two other thieves. At one point, Jesus cries out to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. After this, people start mocking him again. You saved others. Save yourself. Come down from that cross. Come on. If you have that power, save yourself. Reminds us of the wilderness temptation where Satan told Jesus to show his power and throw himself down. One of the thieves dying next to Jesus asks Jesus to remember him in paradise. And Jesus does. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus ever present, ever relational, looks to one disciple still there that we know of, John, and says, John, take care of my mother. This is now your mother. Care for her, caring for his own family. After that, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling the abandonment, the rejection, the pain. Then after that, he cries back out to God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the one that John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who comes away to take away the sin of the world. With that moment, Jesus takes his last breath and dies like that Lamb. In his journey to the cross, Jesus experienced the absolute worst of humanity. Every evil thing we can imagine. Betrayal and abandonment of his closest friends. Rejection on every level. Personal. Religious. From place of faith where he worshiped, groups of people, the government, the rulers, the authority, everyone rejected him. He experienced mockery, nakedness, hunger, and thirst. He experienced brutal physical violence against his body beatings, cuttings, 
he experienced a procession through the city. Think of all the evils. <laughs> and then we send people in shame <laughs> on their own, marching through our crowds. Think about the trail of tears. Think about slavery. Think about people evacuating war zones, people being exiled, people being punished and sent away. Jesus walked that path. He was tortured. He was the object of greed. The Romans playing games and casting lots to see who would win his valuables. Even the last bit of material possession on him was swallowed up in it all. And he was pierced by a sword. This is what we do to one another as humanity. This is how low we go. But the power and wisdom of Christ's profound love for us is that he did this so we would never do this again. So that we would not do this. While he's betrayed and abandoned, he stays present to the end. He did have the power to get off that cross, but he didn't. He stayed present with us. When he was mocked and he was, his body was broken, he restrained himself. Where there was greed and control, he gave generously. And when the worst of the world was taken out on Jesus, he forgave. He forgave us collectively, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And then he forgave us individually. I'll see you. I remember you. You be with me in paradise. He covers so much with his great forgiveness. Brenning Manning says this about the cross. Good Friday reminds us that we are not going to be helped by God's power, only by God's laying aside his power for love of us. Power forces us to change. Only love can move us to change. Power affects behavior. Love affects the heart. And nothing on earth so moves the heart as suffering as love, as the heart as suffering love. Only love can move us to change. It's like we have this head knowledge, but at the cross, Jesus makes an appeal to our hearts, to our emotions, to the places in us that have been the most wounded, the most hurt. Jesus is like, I'm going after your heart. That's what he wants. perfect expression of God's love for us. The point of the story is a dying figure of Jesus on the cross and then his resurrection. Aaron mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer last week, the Lutheran pastor who died in Dachau, resisting the evil <laughs> that was in World War II. He says this about the cross. Christ on the cross is God's enduring word 
to the world saying, see how much I love you. See how you must love one another. Wow. This offends us. <laughs> this offends us. It messes with my brain. It messes with my heart. <laughs> it's a mystery. It's contrary to the word, how the world works, and it's contrary to what we know. But this is the Jesus way. Isn't it, is it, why is it surprising to us that God's power and wisdom would flow from his greatest act of love? It shouldn't be surprising to us. We can ignore the cross altogether because it's too troubling or too ancient or whatever our reason is. But if we do, then we ignore the wisdom and the power of God. And when it's our turn to take up our cross, I don't know about you, but I find every way to try and eliminate the risk and the danger of it. The discomfort of it. I do everything I can to avoid it. I don't want it. But at the end of the day, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And following Jesus is worth the cost. When I give up my life, I find it. I have a friend who said that when she first started coming to worship at this church, this is what she said. I thought I could just come here and worship Jesus and get my Jesus fix and then leave and go and be the same and think the same. But that wasn't possible. <laughs> I couldn't stay the same. And she has experienced such joy and freedom by leaving the old ways of doing things. I mean, just joy, freedom. How can something like this bring us joy? It does. It's amazing. It's a paradox. It's a mystery. It's the power of God inside of us can bring us joy. A little bit like Stanley was saying, there are ups and there are downs. But when we come into this place of looking at the power of the cross, this gratitude wells up in us. And it's like, wow, look what the Lord has done. Look at how amazing and different God is. The power of God, the joy of God, the freedom of God is unlocked by coming to the cross, by giving up my own way, taking up my cross, and following Jesus. I want to close with a story of um, an experience I had where there was another church in town, and they were doing like an Easter pageant. And this was 20 plus years ago. I don't, this was a long time ago. And I went with a friend to see this play. And I'll be honest, I don't really like those plays very much. I kind of really dislike them. <laughs> like, I, they just always feel weird to me, cheesy. They can never live up to the Jesus story in my imagination and my experience with God. But I went with a friend, they wanted to go. So I went with a friend and I found myself just like, oh, 
you know, cringe factor, whatever. But something happened <laughs> as I really started to focus in on the person playing Jesus. And to this day, I, I don't remember what they looked like, but this it was this young guy, probably a few years older than me. And I just started seeing the humanity of Jesus. I was like, this guy is just a young Christian kid like me doing his best to tell the story of the gospel in a play. He probably works nine to five, goes to school, has friends, hangs out on Friday night. And he's just taken off all a whole weekend and who knows how many months of practice to do this play for us. And I just started being absorbed by his character and feeling so much love for him, just as a brother in Christ. And then as I start thinking about him as a brother in Christ, I start thinking of Jesus as my brother, as, as the son of God, as Mary and Joseph's son, as the carpenter, as a kid who went to school in the synagogue or wherever he went, he has a tool in his hand. He, he's hungry. He's thirsty. He probably went to a party on Friday night. And so all of a sudden, I'm like really absorbed by Jesus and this young actor. And there's that point in the Jesus story, which I just told, when Pilate takes Jesus before the crowds. And the way they staged this moment, they had the crowds all up and down the, the aisles of the church. And they just all started yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it was so loud and so startling. And I was like, my heart just leaped within me. And I was like, no, no, you can't do this to this kid. <laughs> you can't, this you can't do this to Jesus. You can't do this to this man, even the sinful man playing this part. You can't do this to him. And I wanted to leap up out of my seat. And I was really afraid I was going to do this. I was going to leap up out of my seat and say, no, no. <laughs> I wanted to imagine myself as that one person in the crowd who's brave enough that one person in the crowd who's strong enough to say, stop this evil. But I know I'm not. <laughs> and as they're yelling it, then a, a new thing starts happening. I start crying. The play got to me. Yes, the play I didn't want to go to, the play that made me cringe, it got to me. I started crying. Because I have this realization that like Peter, I need not just my feet washed, but I need my whole body washed. I need Jesus to be crucified. I need him to be crucified. Because if Jesus doesn't die, how am I going to handle my sins? Humanity needs Jesus crucified. 
If Jesus doesn't do this, how will we believe that our sins are forgiven? If Jesus isn't crucified, we're going to keep requiring blood from each other. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, revenge and cycles of unforgiveness and revenge and unforgiveness. If Jesus doesn't do this, we're going to allow bitter roots to keep cycling. If Jesus doesn't do this, how will we learn down to lay, how will we learn to lay down our lives for one another? How will we know what it means to wash one another's feet? And I started crying and I started saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And this is the foolishness and the power of the cross that we lay down our lives, that Jesus's life was laid down for us. This is the power and the wisdom of the cross. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. In this season, when we remember the cross, Good Friday is this Friday, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, this coming Sunday, when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the following Sunday. In this season, we have, we have choices to make, right? We have choices about how we're going to wrestle and engage with this idea of the cross. We can dismiss it all together. We can be like the robber and, and just say, this is just tradition. This is just what people do. I'll give up candy. <laughs> I don't know. We can learn all about it and we should, but we can keep it as head knowledge. Or we can ask the Lord to allow it to sink into our hearts and become part of our bodies. <laughs> part of our spirits, part of who we are. We can receive the love of Christ crucified. We can abide in the love of Christ crucified. And from there, we can walk in the wisdom and power. It's our choice. We get to choose. We get to choose how we come. We, we, it's, it's us. We get to come and say, Lord, will you Reveal it to us the way you want to reveal it to us. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. In this passage, Jesus, or Paul, excuse me, is talking about all his religious qualifications, all his zeal for the Lord. He was a Pharisee. He knew scripture. He was religious. He knew all the right stuff. He had done all of this stuff. But he says this, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So the, the band is going to lead us in a song, but I just want to finish with a prayer here. Lord, Um, 
Actually, why don't you all stand with me for a minute? If you don't mind, would you mind standing with me? Um, Lord, we come to you today. We ask that you would reveal the power and the wisdom of the cross to us over the next few weeks. This is it. This is the story. This is the gospel. This is what all four gospel writers wrote about. And then in the book of Acts, they lift it out. I pray that we would be a people, that we would live in the wisdom and the power of the cross and resurrection. Help us be a people that embrace the love that you have for us and the love that you want us to lay down and pour out for others. See how you love us. See how we love others. Would you give us, would you transform our minds this week? And would you take us to another revelation of what that means? In Jesus' name.